Hey there. Welcome to Lockdown with Kumar. I'm your host Abhinit Kumar, the founder of this podcast. This show is a deep dive on habits and rituals that make us better, startup opportunities and tech trends that create exponential impact, conversations about life, but mostly venture stories. Join me in this journey as I talk to passionate upcoming leaders from diverse backgrounds, learning together on how to achieve limitless success through ambition, drive, purpose, and vision. Today's episode we have with us Eric Martin who works in software sales at Bay Area based cybersecurity startup Vanta. Previously, Eric has brought products to market in underwater hardware, fantasy sports, and consumer media. I met him through Sandbox, a global community of upcoming leaders. We both are part of the community for some years now. Eric, welcome to the show. I'm excited to learn more about your personal story and everything about software sales, man. Abhinav, thanks so much for having me. Great to reconnect. Really excited to share here. Oh, this is awesome. First of all, how have you been? How are things with COVID in California? What's up? Yeah, things have been good. I I think I mentioned this last time we first spoke, but I normally live in San Francisco. Um, right. As soon as the shelter was announced, I fled to go spend time with my parents outside of Sacramento and went back to SF for a few weeks. Happened to be back near, here in Sacramento this week, but overall I cannot complain. Yeah, it's been a lot of quality bonding with the parents. My sister got married last weekend. Oh, nice. um, congratulations. Yeah, and work's been going tremendously well. How about yourself? How are you uh, it's been great. I mean, uh, driving in Texas is fun, you know, so that's what I've been doing. That's my only way to get out of my house. But yeah, mostly just staying indoors and, you know, interacting with friends and family using digital technology. So that's yeah. how it has been. I love how all these apps are now being flexed or used in many of the ways that the designers and developers originally aspired for them to be used, you know, but now yeah. so constrained kind of physically they're truly being utilized, which has got to be fun for those folks. No, totally. I agree with you. I mean, yesterday I was looking at this app called, mm-hmm. I don't know if you know, Phil Libin, the CEO of Evernote. That's what it's called, by the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a video app, just like Zoom, but just one level deeper. The kind of, uh, you know, things you can do with software right now, it's crazy. I don't think that app could have been designed uh, in a pro-COVID era because nobody had a need for such software. So, you know, on, on the similar lines, I saw some of my friends just bombard me with house party links just to join the call. And I had never used the app before. So, yeah, I mean, lots of lots of software products coming up yeah yeah no so eric uh like i would just love to know your story and maybe you know you could walk us through your whole entrepreneurial journey where you grew up and uh, how you ended up where you are right now yeah totally let's see where to begin so i grew up in stockton california very much the central valley i see um, i can tell when people are new to the bay area because they say oh stockton that's the bay area and it's definitely not the bay area so how far <laughs> um, is it how far is it from the bay or from silicon valley like somebody who hasn't been there yeah, so it's about an hour and a half due east of San Francisco, about 30 minutes south of Sacramento. Okay. Uh, Stockton's had its fair share of kind of, I don't know, how do you say this? Uh, claims to fame per se. We led the nation in home foreclosures back in the day. We were the first, first big city before Detroit to file for bankruptcy. Uh, I think Forbes ranked us the most miserable city three out of five years in a row for a while there. But good people come from Stockton. So <laughs> I bet um, I, uh, I grew up there. I went to college at Santa Barbara, studied mechanical engineering. I then was given the opportunity to go uh, be a founding class student at a new engineering grad school in Saudi Arabia. 
So I went there, ended up spending three years, earned my master's degree in environmental engineering. But during the second half of my stay there, was given the chance to go to a um, Stanford GSB summer program where I was kind of formally introduced to the world of entrepreneurship. And so my last year and a half in Saudi, I actually started the university's entrepreneurship center, startup accelerator and seed fund and and managed that, which I'm happy to announce. I went back eight years later uh, this last January and it's still going incredibly strong. Oh, Uh, that's amazing. Yeah, have have you spent any time in the Middle East? Not really. And that's, that's why I'm curious, you know, how did your journey to Saudi start? I mean, you were in California for a while, finishing college there and then uh, moved to Saudi. So tell us a little bit more about that. So I had studied abroad twice during my undergrad. I did a, a term in Granada, Spain, and I did another term in Cape Town, South Africa. Right. And, and so truly, when I got back from Cape Town, my advisor, I'll never forget, sent me an email and said, hey, come to my office. I have an interesting opportunity for you. Right. Ends up hey, here, here's what's going on. You're the only student I know that's crazy enough to do this. You have a week to apply. And um, yeah, so it's one of those things. You don't go to Saudi for the academics as much as you go for the adventure. Right. And at that time, I was, I definitely had the travel bug. And I got into engineering mostly because I was good at math and science. And my dad was the dean of engineering at the University of the Pacific. So I just kind of grew up okay. around it as opposed to like knowing that I wanted to do that professionally. And so this also bought me some time to figure out, you know, what it was that I wanted to do. Interesting. And and engineering has been the degree which you kind of pursued, right, at Santa Barbara. That was mechanical and then environmental at uh, King Abdullah University, right, in, in Saudi. So that was your craft as such, right? That's what you learned. That's correct. And so what happened was, long story short, did that summer business school program at Stanford, got involved in another designer community called Project M. Okay. Um, Mary. And next thing I know, I was invited uh, to join one of the startups that we had invested in in Saudi as a co-founder. This was an underwater hardware company. And at the age of 25, I moved back to San Francisco. I basically pursued this startup for a year. We ultimately ended up licensing that technology to another underwater hardware manufacturer. And coming out of that, I had <laughs> kind of been sitting right. on this, like, this idea for a real-time fantasy sports uh, mobile application for quite some time. This was around the time that like, FanDuel and DraftKings were just coming into play. And so I went out, raised a small seed round, seed round, excuse me, and built a prototype, tried to get users, ultimately fell flat on my face, learned a ton of brutal lessons about what it means to actually start a company and what is truly required at a minimum from a, a homework or a thinking standpoint beforehand. Right. But Tremendous learning experience, uh, which ultimately led me to sales, which is which is where I am today. Interesting. So you started as an entrepreneur, and the companies which you kind of worked on were was I Dive Housing, so that was the uh, hardware startup, right? Yeah. And Crowd Sporting was the kind of like FanDuel, the app which you guys worked on. So could you just you know condense your two year three year journey which you spent working on these two startups what were your key takeaways and what eventually led you to you know pivot to software sales from there yeah it's a good question let me start with the ending which is that coming out of the crowd sporting failure a number of my investors and really mentors had said hey if you want to go start another company one day every good ceo needs to be a good salesperson they're like you're such a people person we really think you should just do it Take the at bat. It's going to be a really humbling experience, but we think you're going to do really well. Right. So that's how I ultimately made the pivot. 
But I will say this, it was kind of ironic in these two experiences, founding or co-founding these companies, because during my time in Saudi at the Accelerator, one of the things that we really emphasized and we, and we tried to teach was the importance of having a found or a strong business model. And the two, if you break it down, the reason that the two businesses that we built ultimately you know, failed, although licensing is a questionable fail, was because they didn't have any business model that they could rest on. Right. And so, you know, back in 2011, this is, this is the era when people were like building apps and calling them businesses. And I was just as guilty as the next founder. There was this kind of fallacy that, you know, like product, product drove everything. My mindset towards business growth has changed tremendously since then. I'm very much like a sales drives or sales and product together drive right. Uh, as opposed to just like purely product doing all the legwork. And so, yeah, ultimately, like long story short, we, you know, we, we kind of neglected to do kind of the very basic homework that founders need to do when they're going about starting their business, which is coming out of the gates with a number of hypotheses that they're able to then go out and test and, you know, be very open to the, the possibility of those hypotheses either coming true and or failing and then adjusting until you kind of find something that sticks, assuming that you have the resources to keep working on this as long as you can. Well, thank you for sharing that, Eric. I mean, that story is pretty helpful and I can relate uh, a lot lot with that because when you do your first startup, you know, you're kind of jumping and uh, it's very spontaneous, right? You think you can like just conquer the world. And uh, that's where, you know, the comment you made on being able to analyze and think before starting up, that's that's key. So now that you've been five uh, five years in software sales and, you know, a couple or, you know, three years almost in entrepreneurship, eight years later, if you had to, you know, advise anybody who's starting up, like in terms of like frameworks, the person should really go through, do, do you have like any advice? I think my advice is it's to truly go through the exercise of kind of like listing out the different assumptions and hypotheses that that need to prove true in order for your business to in your defined terms, succeed, and then figure out ways to test those on the cheap. I think, you know, I'm connected now with a number of investors and early stage kind of startup accelerators. And when I talk to these folks, whether they're deciding on which companies to accept into their next batch or who they want to give money to, ultimately they want to see that, you know, you've done the testing to validate these assumptions. They don't necessarily care that you have a beautiful logo or that, you have a functioning app, right? Like survey results have done more for early stage entrepreneurs looking to raise money than flashy mobile apps. So it, I think my only advice would be, hey, don't go out thinking that like you need to go spend a lot of money to test assumptions and kind of validate your ideas. You can do these things on the cheap. And I think this all kind of trickles back to some of the invincibility that I feel now you know, six years into the world of sales in that if I were to go back again, I, you know, I thought for the longest time that I wasn't going to be able to recruit a technical co-founder until I had a flashy product that had, you know, thousands of users in hindsight, that's crazy. Like now that I've, you know, learned as much as I have, um, around just kind of the art of selling, oh man, I'd go back and I'd, I would approach this so differently. And, you know, all these, these mental barriers that I had are all of a sudden just not there. Interesting, interesting. So I think this is a great segue to just talk about your software sales journey. And I think you started at Swift Type, um, once again in the Bay Area, and then moved to DataFox. So would love to really 
get an insight of what you learned at those companies and both these companies got acquired. So it would be an interesting story, I think. Yeah. So Swift type was, it was interesting. I, when I, when I got into sales, um, I didn't know up from down, you know, I, I had enough swagger per se uh, <laughs> confidence that I was like, I can come in and I can do this. I knew at a very high level what an account executive did. I knew at a very high level what an SDR or a BDR, that's a sales development representative did. Um, and I felt confident that I could jump straight into the account executive ranks. Now, <laughs> when I got into, when I basically first got into sales and started interviewing, I interviewed at three companies. I interviewed at a firm, I interviewed, okay. which was brand new at the time. The sales team was like four people. Uh, I interviewed at Lyft for business okay. or whatever, their, their B2B side. And I interviewed at Swift type and I got to the final round at all, all of the places. And ultimately like the, the sales leader at a firm at the time said, oh, we're just a little too worried that you haven't been in a quota carrying role. And in hindsight, I have so much respect for that decision because I had no idea what was involved. And from the lift side, I'll never forget. I think their CRO is still there. He brought me into a room. He was a hockey coach and he drew a graph and said, look, in hockey, we have people who he drew this kind of four quadrant and he said, on one end of this, of this chart, we have people who are naturally talented. On the other end, we have people that work hard. And he's like, I think you're probably naturally talented, but don't work hard. And I was like, wow, okay. So took it upon myself and I was like, okay, here we go. Kind of like the MJ effect of, all right, time to go. You know, if this is the battle I'm going to pick, let's go. And so I ended up, Swift Type was kind of a backup plan. I had some friends that worked there or was introduced by some friends. And that was for a BDR role. Okay. And after striking out at a firm and lift, I kind of, once again, I talked about this being a humbling experience, took the piece of humble pie and, and went for this BDR position. And I was salesperson number three. It was still a really early stage company. I think we were maybe 20 people. And what I learned there were two really important lessons. One is that in sales, you have to hit your quota, especially okay. in the BD, in that like BDR, SDR function. Sales is the most measurable kind of job you can have within an org. And if you want to move up the ranks, you have to hit your number, especially in that kind of like sales development position. I learned that lesson the hard way actually through, <laughs> through an ex-girlfriend. I had been like doing like 80 to 90% each month and just kind of complaining after work about like the lack of kind of talk about promotion. Right. And I'll never forget the combo I had with the girl I was dating at the time who just said she was also in sales and she just, just put it so bluntly. She's like, hey, stop your bickering. You have to hit your quota. And I don't right. know about that conversation. It's like, it just stuck. I, and then like from that point on, I was like, okay, cool. I guess like, this is what I have to do. You can't get close. You have to get there or beyond. Right. The other thing that I learned um, there was that in sales, people love to talk about themselves. And so as it is, I, I've always felt like I've had a knack for conversations, but I especially learned to flex that in that very first role, basically like, especially in these initial qualification calls, giving people the opportunity to talk about themselves, talk about the things that they own, getting them invested in kind of like on their high horse before, you know, taking them down the path that I want to take them down. So that's kind of what I learned, I suppose, in a nutshell in those first couple of roles or that first role, excuse me. No, this is awesome, man. Thanks for sharing that story, actually. I'm, I'm intrigued. So, you know, people who are budding salesmen or people who want to get into software and want to start with selling, obviously they need to be 
people oriented. That's a skill which kind of comes naturally or some people learn it on the way, right? But what are other toolkits or, you know, you know any advice you have for, for those ambitious sales folks out there? And then how does the whole process work? If you could just give us some insight on that, like, you know, when you said you got to be hitting your Kodak, could you, could you give us some more examples? Yeah, yeah, totally. So at a very high level, when you think about software sales, there are generally like two tiers of roles. There are these initial roles that really anyone, frankly, anyone off the street could get. And that's a sales development role or a business development role. Okay. Um, and in this role, you're doing a bunch of cold calling, cold emailing, depending on the org, you might literally just be scheduling meetings for the account executive all day, every day. And your commission is based on how many meetings you book in other orgs. They let their SDRs and BDRs go a step further where they have them actually run the initial phone calls with the prospects. They get to spend anywhere from, you know, five to 30 minutes with them, you know, learning more about them and their business pains before introducing them to the account executive. And then the account executive at large is responsible for actually closing, you know, signing the customer up, right? Getting them to the finish line and collecting the payment. That, that's at a very, very, very high level. Beyond that, in the sales ecosystem, there are a number of like, kind of, you know, tangential roles. And there are obviously like different layers to sales management as well. But when folks are thinking about getting into sales, this is largely what you're signing up for. I will say this much, like, um, it's also worth highlighting that, you know, if you're looking to get into sales or to learn more about it, one thing to be cognizant of, and maybe just a research question to ask folks beforehand is, <coughs> excuse me, whether or not, you know, is to understand who they sell to, how big their total addressable market is, right? Because the sales cycle of selling software to a five to 20 person company versus to a 200 to 500 person company versus to a 5,000 to 10,000 person company is a totally different experience. And each just requires a different kind of skill set. So at Swift type, we were selling across the board, but predominantly to smaller businesses. Whereas the next company that I joined data Fox, which the, the joining story there is kind of fun. I, I was actually introduced to the team as a guest player on their soccer team. Okay. And at the end of the season, basically the whole, the whole sales team was on the team and they were like, Hey, you got to join us. And once again, another, just like <laughs> kind of brutal, humbling position to be in where I'd been an SDR for a year at Swift type. I was ready to get promoted, but the company culture itself just left things to be desired. They ultimately had a good outcome and I'm very happy for them. But whereas like the data Fox guys company culture was everything. And so I, I did end up joining them, but they made me be a BDR for another nine months before I, I finally got promoted to AE. Got it. But that's, yeah. It's a little well, more oh, thank you. Tell me, tell me more about your new company, which you're working with, Vanta. So I know that you were the first sales guy at Vanta, right? So you probably experienced setting up the sales process along with the founders. So tell us more about that. But obviously, like, you know, talk a little bit about Vanta and like, what, what do you guys do? Yeah. So let me talk about, uh, let me first give some context for how I got here. So, um, after Swift type, I went to data Fox for two and a half years. Data Fox was ultimately acquired by Oracle while I was there. That was, okay. a, really, that was a really interesting experience. We all got jobs with Oracle, but from my purview, life's too short to work for a big company like that. And so just as soon as we were acquired, I immediately began kind of reaching out to my networks to figure out where I would go next. And what I was optimizing for was a place where I could flex my entrepreneurial ambition as well as my sales skills. And what that directly translated to was a place where I could be the first person. And so when I learned about Vanta, 
at the time they had six employees. They had a website with a land with like a text field that said, you know, put in your email if you want information. And the only text on the website was security in a box. Well, almost 35 people will probably be 55 to 60 by the end of the year. Um, I joined as the first salesperson. I now lead a team of seven, soon to be nine, soon to be 11. And who knows from there? But yes, to your point, I joined as the first salesperson and was player coach for the first 12 months, ultimately figuring out, as you mentioned, kind of what the sales playbook would look like, how we would get people over the line. Fortunately, Vanta has very close to very good product market fit. Okay. And let me introduce kind of listeners to what we actually do. <clears throat> so at large, we're a software company. We're a mm -hmm. cybersecurity and compliance start startup. What we do is we build software that streamlines and automates the getting of different compliance certifications. So specifically, we've built software that streamlines the getting of SOC 2 and HIPAA and eventually ISO 27001. Let's, okay. let's, focus on, let's focus on SOC 2. So SOC 2 is a B2B cybersecurity compliance report that companies need to get if they handle or process sensitive data. It's, at this point, it's table stakes. If you're working with the enterprise, you partner with banks, you sell to universities or hospitals, et cetera. Historically, it was very like labor intensive and cost prohibitive. What you would do is you would hire auditors in the pre-COVID times, they would come to your office, do a bunch of shoulder surfing for a week, present you with a list of, you know, one to 200 things that you need to go do and fix. You're, you're left to your own devices to go fix these things, prove that you fix them in the form of screenshots, and then present them to the auditor before they could file your report. I see. Yeah. In Vanta, real quick, we built software that relies on read-only APIs and other ancillary tools to help automatically test against those SOC 2 requirements. And we display that information in our platform in a way that our partner auditors can come in and decipher without requiring any auditor interactions or any screenshots. So a lot of that manual process, it just gets automated with the software. And I'm guessing a lot of timeline uh, delays, which would happen initially, would not happen now, right? It saves a lot of time and cost for the companies. Exactly. So what? So let's let's say you're a 15 person company listening to this, and it's like you every deal you go through, you have a security assessment with the vendor, and they send you a lengthy questionnaire. And the very first question on the questionnaire is, "Do you have a SOC too? If yes, check this box and skip the questionnaire." Uh, if you're in that position, then tap dancing around it because you think it's going to take too long to get or be too expensive. It's true. In the old days, if you were to work with an, uh, just strictly with an auditor for even a 20 person company, your timeline to get a SOC 2 is at a minimum four months, maximum 12 months. In, wow. Vanta, in Vanta, 20 person companies are go going from zero to SOC 2 ready in one to three weeks. Interesting. So anyway, the sales cycle is long if you're doing enterprise sales and add compliance on top of that, that would just like, you know, increase the time spent before you could sell your software to bigger organizations before, exactly. before Vanta. Yeah. yeah. We actually, we're, I'm actually on a, a, another webinar tomorrow and another podcast next Friday or this Friday, excuse me, where that's kind of the end. That's kind of what the main talking point, which is making sure that companies at every stage are prepared at every, you know, mm -hmm. stop along the sales cycle to actually get the deal done. And one of the last steps in every sales cycle is proving security and compliance. And so, you know, where Vanta falls in line is 
making sure that companies of any stage, many of our customers are pre-seed stage, two to three person companies, can also still show that SOC 2 report that you know used to generally only be kind of expected of really large companies. Right. So it's stage agnostic as such. Who would you recommend to consider getting Vanta? Like what kinds of you know software companies or you know people doing SaaS? Yep. So um, at large, uh, when we look at our customer base today, uh, any software company that you know sells into the mid market or enterprise is going to be asked for a SOC two at some point along the way. Any company who works with or partners with financial institutions, whether you're like a fintech company or an insurance company, you're also going to be asked for this. If you're in the healthcare space or the ed tech space, this is also table stakes, predominantly because these you know, medical institutions or these higher education institutions are also just going to require SOC 2. So it's really, I mean, the exciting thing for us is that the total addressable market is quite large. And mm-hmm. as we think about you know, productizing other certifications as well, it's bigger. But we do have nice tools uh, to help us analyze who, who our existing customers are and what types of profiles of businesses are like taking the bait. No, this is this is exciting, man. I, I like the product, uh, especially because it saves a lot of time on the entrepreneur's front. And uh, this is where I think I have a question for you around helping software companies get SOC 2 compliance, right? So you've probably done it with a bunch of software companies in the US. What was the key takeaway for you, like in their migration journey to that SOC 2 compliance? What do you mean? Yeah, like any, any lessons you learned along the way, you know, things which would make the whole process easier, uh, you know, in terms of like a company looking at it? Oh, got it. Yeah. So if a company has reached a point where they're either being asked to get SOC 2 or they're ready to make that, make that decision, I think the, <laughs> well, the biggest, the biggest takeaway I have is the earlier you do it, as in like the fewer people at your company, when you get your SOC 2, the easier the process is going to be. Because in order to get SOC 2, every one of your employees needs to do security training, have MFA turned on, they need to do background check. Well, they don't need to do background checks, but they, they're recommended to do background checks. They have to accept your policies. And the cat herding piece can be very tedious, even with software solutions like Vanta. So I, I, you know, my second full-time job is helping companies or startup founders to figure out you know, whether or not they really need to get a SOC 2. At the end of the day, if you're an early stage company and you're trying to close your first enterprise deals, these chief security officers or these heads of compliance who are doing their due diligence, they understand that, you know, the constraints and uh, the stage that you're in and the priorities that you have as a business. And so I oftentimes will ask folks a qualifying question of like, hey, this company that you're trying to sell that's asking for SOC 2. Are they an anomaly or are they the, the, the profile of company that you're going to continue to spend calories trying to close? And if the answer is they're an anomaly, then I highly recommend and I kind of coach these founders on avoiding getting a SOC 2 and just filling out the questionnaire as best they can. But everyone else, it's really easy for us to, to help you know, plug them in and get them on, off the ground, assuming that SOC 2 is something that they've either decided that they want to do or it's just table stakes for their industry. Awesome. Oh, this is cool. Just one more question about Vanta. So you were an early employee, obviously, and you've set up the sales process of this company, seven people now under you. So how did you go about uh, setting up the whole system? And obviously, what's your advice to entrepreneurs working to build that function in-house? Yeah, it's a good question. So thank God I came from DataFox before this company, where DataFox was 
a predominantly outbound growth company. And what, what I mean by that is that when you think about sales, there's inbound sales and there's outbound sales. So inbound sales would be, you might run paid ads on Google and people are clicking those ads and they're requesting a demo. It may be that you have crazy virality from word of mouth and people are just kind of organically finding you. These leads are generally warmer per se than if you were to use an SDR to go do cold outreach and ask someone to take to see your product demo. And so because I was at DataFox where we did, prim, we were primarily focused on outbound, I, and because I worked with such talented salespeople who came from Salesforce, there were a couple of things we did out of the gates. First things first, we signed up for Salesforce. We also configured it in a way that like, frankly, I, maybe this is biased, but we configured Salesforce in the way that it was designed to be used. And from my first day on the job, we began all of a sudden cataloging all of the conversations we were having, all of the companies we were speaking with, and we started, you know, properly documenting the opportunities or the deals that we were generating, whether or not we closed them, et cetera. So highly, highly recommend if you're building a sales team, one of the first things you should do, go get a CRM. I'm biased. I think Salesforce is the de facto. Um, there are plenty of other CRMs out there. I have a number of friends that use HubSpot, for example, which is, I think they have a free option for early stage companies. Okay. But first things first, get that CRM in place. The other thing is the, the next thing really depends on the space you're in. At DataFox, we were in an industry where our total addressable market was pretty limited, as in like there were about 5,000 companies in total that we could sell to. And so we were able to build an outbound team of SDRs and BDRs and strategic accounts that they were meant to go reach out to and try to get meetings with them. And like, frankly, that was a, a pretty efficient model. At Vanta, our total addressable market is like millions of companies. And so it's more of a numbers game. Historically, we've um, you know, been very blessed to have very strong inbound interest, as in we have strong virality among our customers. We have very kind of what we call like privileged introductions that we get on a regular basis from VCs and other partners. Okay. But, but planning for the rainy day, I also made sure that we were building an outbound engine. It turns out that rainy day happened to be COVID. For us, we landed more on the boom than the bust side of this whole equation. But that said, what we did was I recruited one of my former coworkers from DataFox and we have now built this, uh, I, I just call it an outbound engine, basically okay. this, this process where we're able to strategically go after accounts that we know are good fits en masse and we're able to do it in such a manner where all of our account executives wake up every morning and they have four to five new meetings booked on their calendars. And I could go into the weeds, but it might be getting a little, but in any case, I think two things, was get a CRM in place, document everything. And from day one, if you're not already doing outbound sales, start to think about kind of how you might begin doing outbound sales, because you never know when a pandemic is going to strike or, you know, something else is going to happen and you want to be ready for that rainy day. Interesting. Now those insights are, uh, Awesome. I have a question about your uh, personal story, Eric. So on your LinkedIn, I think you talk about a soccer alliance, which uh, your brother and your best friend uh, run together. So yeah, if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I owe this to my, my parents. They're probably the most like, generous people I know, as, especially when it comes to just giving back to the community. So 10 years ago, I guess now 11 years ago, my brother, my best friend and I started a small nonprofit in Stockton called the San Joaquin Soccer Alliance. For us, we grew up playing soccer. It opened many doors for us. 
Stockton is a historically low income kind of uneducated community. And what we did was we decided, Hey, like the county has never had an, a high school all-star soccer game. Let's start one. So we now host these weekend long events for the top senior soccer players in the county end up having around like 80 to hundred high school seniors participate every year, boys and girls. It's a two day event full of kind of training, educational talks from college coaches and kind of like college admissions folks. And we work really closely with the community college program or the, the local soccer coaches at the, sorry, the soccer coach at the local community college to kind of make sure that as many of these students who we interact with, if they were not planning on going to college and or playing soccer in college, all of a sudden kind of like had a clear path to doing so. And, uh, you know, to take it full circle, when you talk about like kind of entrepreneurship and investing, you know, investors are ultimately like placing their bets on the entrepreneur and the woman's soccer coach, the woman's at Delta College in Stockton is exactly the kind of entrepreneur you want to put your chips on. And so we kind of got really lucky that we partnered with her from the beginning. For those listening who don't know, community colleges are generally kind of like two-year educational experiences for people who, you know, may or may not want to go get a bachelor's degree or beyond at a four-year school afterwards. This woman, the last thing I'll say, she has a 95% conversion rate of her female kind of athletes graduating and getting either a full athletic scholarship or full academic scholarship to a four-year school after their two years with her. So, <laughs> wow, that's an impressive credential, right? It's uh, not common. Been, and she's been doing this for like 12 years now. It's incredible. So it makes our job really fun, <laughs> getting a, <laughs> kind of getting a weird taste of what investors must feel like when they make good investments. Uh, in this case, it just so happens this is a, a social investment per se and um, just our way of kind of giving back. But that is the gist of the soccer charity. Well, this is awesome. This is probably my favorite part of the podcast right now. One more question. I mean, before we wrap up this episode, I always ask my guests what one habit or ritual they abide by, which has kind of like changed their life in some ways, or it's pretty simple to pick up and implement. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's funny. The first thing that comes to my mind, like first habit that I that I have per se is, it's going to sound so simple, but I write everything down. Growing up, my dad used to remind us daily. He'd be like, don't forget to do this. And then as kids, we'd forget. He'd say, don't forget to do this. Write it down. Don't forget to do this. Write it down. And I can't remember at what age it was that it like finally hit home or because I didn't write something down, there was some dire consequence. But long story short, I now write everything down. I don't have the best app or tool to use to kind of keep track of these reminders. More often than not, there is like calendar events on my iPhone, but I will literally wake up in the middle of the night if I forgot to write something down and I will write it down to remind myself to do it the next day. So. No, <laughs> I, I think I relate with that advice. Like that's something which took me a while to really, you know, get codified in my system as well. But now I feel whatever I try learning, I try to use you know, some app or, or probably my notebook to just write it down. Uh, that's been a challenge, obviously, designing a personal workflow, which, you know, flows fluently. And I guess like now I could say that I've kind of mastered it a little bit of it, but still evolving. So it's, it's an ever evolving process. Yeah. Now, well, Eric, I appreciate you uh, asking great questions and listening to me here. This has been fun for me. 
No, I, I learned quite a lot. And I think uh, our listeners would enjoy listening to your stories on social impact, software stay, sales, and you know entrepreneurship. And if anybody would have questions, hopefully they could reach out to you on Twitter or something. So. Yeah, I mean, or they can they can reach out to me. It's just Eric at Vanta, E-R-I-C at V-A-N-T-A dot com. And uh, yeah, I'd be happy to, uh, to chat if anyone has any further questions. That's awesome, Eric. Thanks for taking our time, man. Appreciate your hope. Thanks, brother. Talk to you soon. Awesome. Take care. Yep. I loved having Eric on the show here and would like to say a big thank you to him for taking our time to talk with us and good luck on the journey ahead. If you would like to see more from Eric, you can follow him on Twitter at Eric Long Martin. I'd love to see this conversation moving. Find me on Twitter at Abhinit Says and chime in with your views. Until next time, I'm your host, Abhinit Kumar, and you just listened to Lockdown with Kumar. Thank you.